0: Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing okay in, uh, you know, another month of this kind of crazy world that we found ourselves in, right, where six months ago, you know, pre-pandemic is almost seems like a decade ago, but that's how I've been feeling all these last few years, where Obama's presidency feels like, you know, 25 years ago. It is really weird what time does when things are chaotic and insane. But today I actually wanna talk about something hopeful. It's something I've been working on a lot over the last couple decades. The title here is Don't Look Now, but the Democrats are serious on climate. And that's because we're starting to see a coalition and a consensus building on climate change that we have not seen really ever in US politics and that is really quite serious and quite hopeful and just really good stuff so i want to talk about that for this episode the different facets of that and uh see where that leaves us one thing i want to get out right in front here is that when i started working in environmental and climate issues more than two decades ago I was absolutely never one of those who thought it was a hoax or anything remotely of that nature, but I did think maybe it won't be so severe that we can't adapt our way out of it, and since so much of it is likely baked in at this point, that we'll be able to adapt, and that's really where a lot of our focus should be, is on the adaptation, maybe more so even than the mitigation, and I have come to realize that that was wrong. Uh, that climate change is such a huge threat that we really need to work on the mitigation to really reduce the impacts. Because if these things get out of control, uh, humanity's fate is not so secure. And the reason is, is that climate change is in a lot of ways, not only in an absolute sense, a horrible kind of fate for humanity and many of the life forms that we share this planet with, but it's really a force multiplier for really almost all of the really bad trends in the world. So think about all the racism and anti-immigration stuff that we've been hearing and which really led to Agent Orange's victory in 2016. And that was because of, you know, a couple hundred thousand uh, Latin Americans, you know, trying to get into the country and perhaps um, getting into the country illegally every year. These are people who are incredibly hardworking and great, you know, uh, members of the community, and we should be thanking them for coming to the U.S. to do all kinds of jobs that that we don't want to do, and for really helping our economy and making our society much younger as we age. But all that racism in there for 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 that wave of immigration will be multiplied by 10x because the millions and millions and millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of climate refugees that are going to be clamoring to get into northern and southern latitudes out of the tropics uh, is going to really dwarf that. Then we add that to all the kind of exclusionary rhetoric and the building the walls and the fake right-wing populism, you know, of and nationalism and jingoism. Climate change could really take humanity in some bad directions. And And not only that, but just that it will suck out so much of the oxygen and the political will that we won't have time to really focus on so many other things. And it will become an all-consuming issue that will really, in some ways, numb society as it really batters us. You know, this is the hardest issue humanity has ever faced. Those who say, oh, environmentalists have been working on climate change for decades and they haven't been able to do it. This is a great failure. Well, you know there's some there's certainly failures to go around, but this is the hardest problem ever, right? It's fast enough that it's making it hard to cope with the changes, right? so sea level rise, storms, ocean acidification, droughts. It's going fast enough that our systems are having a hard time adapting, but it's not going fast enough to get people too scared. So that they really demand change. So it's in that perfect sweet spot about really damaging, accelerating damage, but yet not enough to really scare large portions of people to really get them to do something like, you know, some Al-Qaeda members blowing up a couple buildings in the United, in the United States and killing a few thousand people. That could mobilize the country, but yet climate change can't, or at least until now. Also, it is self-imposed, right? Remember, just like everything really that humanity has brought upon ourselves and, you know, um, it's really self-imposed stuff here. This is, we have nobody to blame but ourselves. But progress is being made in the U.S. And before I get into the details of what that's looking like, I really want to give a shout out to the youth activists. They have... ...ushered in a series of kind of shocking victories for political mobilization and change in the last few years. They're, they're victories that are so large that the media hasn't really been able to fully process them and keep pace with them. The media hasn't internalized what a bunch of youth activists have been able to do in a few short years. Right, The top researchers and scientists in the U.S. were unable to move the goalposts significantly for political change for decades, but a bunch of teenagers did. And that's just, it's an incredible testament to thinking outside the box, thinking creatively, creatively, not being bogged down by self-imposed political constraints that it turns out are actually illusory, right? Once you realize that they're illusory and you say, I'm going to make the change I want, incredible things happen. Right. And this, in addition, this transition time from the protest phase to the policy phase has been incredibly quick. So we we had these the Sunrise Movement, 350.org, Justice Democrats, you know, do these really high profile uh, protest movements against, you know, sit in, sit in at Nancy Pelosi's office, getting AOC really involved. Then we come out with this Green New Deal resolution. And then a little over a year later, there's a, you know, a committee of, you know, progressives and moderates across the whole democratic field sitting down to bang out a major climate report that is just really nothing short of incredible. It's important to point out that this is all being led by the Democratic Party because the GOP is a white grievance cult in the service of plutocracy and part of that plutocracy is the fossil fuel interests, so they are not good faith af- actors. It's going to be up to the Democrats ...to do this important work since the GOP is not uh, interested in actually governing and solving problems. And so this Dem plan that has just been released, it's called Solving the Climate Crisis, it clocks in at a nice, uh, easy 500 plus pages, um, is incredibly promising and really shows the incredible unity on the left, right? We hear all this media bullshit about Dems in disarray and moderates versus progressives and will the Bernie folks vote for Biden? All that is just, you know, talking heads nonsense. The Dems are incredibly united on this and they have a lot of work to show for it. So after the break, I'm going to get into the details about this new solving the climate crisis report. Don't you know, you're talking about a revolution, mm, the sounds a like whisper. Don't you know, you're talking about a revolution, mm, the sounds a like whisper. While they're standing in the Wilfred Lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation, wasting time. Okay, so now on to the details of this really incredible democratic achievement here. The first kind of preface I'd like to make here is that the old approach to solving climate change in the US came in the form of basically pricing carbon andor or including green all greenhouse gases that, you know, are also um, dangerous to to the climate. And this was through two uh, potential vehicles a carbon greenhouse gas tax or a cap and trade bill right so in 2009 the democratic house uh, passed the waxman markey cap and trade bill um, and this would have been going a long way to putting a price on carbon most people don't realize it but a cap and trade by limiting how much you can emit and creating property rights over that does the same thing that a tax does and it creates a uh a price on carbon or greenhouse gases. This never got a hearing in the Senate because at that time and still to this day with the filibuster in place you need 60 votes in the Senate and even though the Democrats had about 55 votes which in any other sane democracy would have allowed it to pass uh, they didn't even bring it up for a vote because uh, it was going to be a hard vote and if it was going to lose uh, there was no point in um, taking that political hit for a losing venture. But again, Nancy Pelosi passed it in the House. And this, this these bills, whether a, a, a carbon tax or a cap and trade, the logic behind this is, is that if we just put a cost on these greenhouse gas pollutants, uh, industry will move away from them. And we really will shift to renewables and kind of low carbon production largely effortlessly after this is done, right? We won't need to make major investments. We won't need to subsidize green power. We won't need to, um, you know, to create standards for buildings and cars. We're just going to price greenhouse gases and then let the market work its magic. Now, in in all fairness, uh, if a, a really serious price on carbon was enacted that didn't have loopholes, a lot of this would go a long way to getting us where we need to be. But those pathways have really fallen out of favor. And it's kind of complicated why. Uh, But, you know, some people think it's kind of a way for industry to pay to pollute and getting out of their responsibility. So if you can, you know, buy a permit to pollute, you know, you get to pollute, um, even though, you know, it should be a, a sanction against it. There's a lot of people who think it can be gamed and rigged. And then obviously the whole entire Republican Party that's opposed to any tax increases on industry opposed it because these would increase, you know, cost to industry. So that was the that was the big, you know, name of the game. Greenhouse gas taxes and cap and trade for many for decades. You know, I've been teaching this for about 20 years, and this is a big component of my greenhouse gas economics instruction. And now that is pretty much out of the window. And that's a big change. We've just basically jettisoned that and thrown that out the window. And I'd like to say, you know, as a member of the economics profession, you know, we lost this battle because the economics as a profession was not able to overcome the political obstacles and really convince the public, uh, you know, that this was the best way forward and it's not just a-, a license for people to pollute. So in a lot of ways, it's a huge ideological failure in the economics uh profession but of course it's important to point out that this is mostly due in the u.s to conservative opposition that they actually have passed you know uh you know cap and trade and and climate taxes in the eu and canada and china so this is really because our conservative movement is so off the reservations batshit insane that we couldn't even have that conversation so what's the new plan about So the new plan is really focused on investments in renewable energy and regulatory standards to shift us to clean energy. So whether that's mandating fuel efficiency standards, uh, renewable portfolio standards, the percentage of electricity that needs to be generated by clean energy, uh, building standards is a huge part of it, right? Energy efficiency in buildings and the the new baseline that this report lays out here is one hundred percent decarbonized economy by 2050. And I, again, I want to underline how incredibly uh, shocking it is that that is now the baseline for the Democratic plan. This wasn't even on the radar for the Democrats in a few years ago. Absolutely was not under the, on the radar for under the Obama administration. None of their plans, none of their targets aim for complete decarbonization by 2050. I mean, that's only 30 years from now. So it's just an incredible achievement that that's now um, the baseline. This report really outlines all the incredible ways that we can, you know, make investments in this country, whether it's a clean grid, whether it's offshore energy, whether, again, it's, um, you know, electrification of cars. um, That I think are going to be a lot more possible actually in this COVID economy. And the reason being is it used to be that when the Democrats would come out with these climate bills that had huge price tags, you know, the the, the the usual suspects on the right would say, you're going to bankrupt the economy and we don't have trillions to waste. But now that COVID's come around and we're throwing trillions of dollars around like pocket change and we're going to really need to rebuild the economy, I think the price tag... For a couple trillion dollars of green climate investment is just not going to be shocking to, to the peop, the public and the, the media and the punditry class. We're just getting used to much bigger numbers here. The final component, which is really integral to this democratic plan, is environmental justice. It's front and center in this plan. It's not a fringe issue. So this is both for workers and kind of investments and transitioning people out of fossil fuels... Building the new workforce for solar and wind and retrofitting buildings, but also a real focus on targeting cleanup and clean energy for poor communities. Because as we know, it's black and brown communities that bear a disproportionate amount of the toxic legacy, whether it's air pollution or the, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, type style where it's, you know, lead in the water. You know, black and brown com- communities, not exclusively, there are poor white communities that. Have you know environmental injustices, but the you know they've borne the brunt, and so a lot of this plan is really on you know redressing that wrong and, and correcting it. And so this plan also it's important to note was put together by a team from both Biden and Bernie's camps. So they came together, they nominated people um, from from each of their respective camps, and they worked together in incredibly good faith. To put together this report, and some of those people from the youth groups were at the table, you know, front and center, um, you know, writing these recommendations. So it's just an incredible victory for these youth groups that, again, weren't even on the radar barely a few years ago. So after the break, I'm going to talk about the ocean component of the climate uh, policy, uh, which is something I've been working on quite intensively over the last year plus. So oceans up after the break. A little Indian brave who before he was 10 Played war games in the woods with his Indian friends And he built a dream that when he grew up He wouldn't be a fearless warrior, Indian chief Many moons passed and more the dream grew stronger till tomorrow He would sing his first war song and fight his first battle But something went wrong, surprise Tad Killed him in his sleep that night And so castles made of sand melts into the sea eventually. Okay, so as I mentioned, I've been working on the ocean climate nexus for quite a long time. My center has been putting together an ocean climate action plan, aka Blue New Deal. And uh, we just released our report. And uh, it's really, you know, I think a An incredible testament to the work of dozens of researchers and academics and government and industry leaders. We've really been trying to build a national coalition for ocean climate policy and we think we have a lot to add to the conversation. And the reason we felt it was important to do this as a on a kind of parallel track and separately from the kind of democratic efforts is because the oceans just don't get the attention that they deserve in the climate discussions. Most people are just focused on kind of terrestrial resources, whether it's, you know, solar and, and wind and, uh, you know, changing cars and buildings, etc. And so we figured we really needed to do a deep dive into the ocean climate nexus to get the best kind of policy and science ready for uh, the next administration to act on. And one thing I will point out is, is the Democratic report, unlike the original Green New Deal proposal... Is have a lot of uh, on the oceans, and there's a lot of great stuff in that report that I think you know shows that they're taking the ocean climate nexus quite seriously. But I think ours still offers a lot of nuance and detail, some of which is counterintuitive uh, to this kind of policy agenda. Just to start, we focused on four key issue areas, so we did coastal adaptation and financing, offshore clean energy, uh, port shipping and the maritime sector and then the, the final was kind of fishing and aquaculture and marine biodiversity conservation. And and like I said, we found some counter-intuitive results. And so let me just mention a couple of those. Um so the first is is that, you know, offshore wind, everybody who looks at this knows that the US is woefully behind. We have one tiny little offshore wind project off Block Island on the East Coast where, you know, the EU has just you know, many, many gigawatts of offshore power, you know, all across multiple countries. You know, Asia offshore renewables is really skyrocketing. Taiwan is building many gigawatts. And here we are in the U.S. with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles of of incredible coastline that's great for offshore wind, and we have almost nothing. And so the Democrats focus a lot on You know tax credits these kind of um renewable energy tax credits for offshore wind and that's great it's good to help boost offshore wind um, in that way but what we found is that that's actually not the main impediment is not cost that in fact offshore wind is cost competitive and the cheapest cost of power in many regions of the u.s what's hampering offshore wind is the regulatory process Right In federal waters, those that are three miles or or more beyond the shoreline, um, the federal government has to give a lease to companies to put off offshore wind. And that is just a really cumbersome process. They don't have that down. And there's all these companies that are clamoring for those leases, and they're not getting them. And so the economics is actually quite good. And the tax credits won't solve that kind of permitting and leasing issue. So we really focus on that. Another thing. You know, a big part of adapting to climate change, and both the adaptation and the mitigation part, is going to be building living shorelines across coastal communities to provide kind of storm protection and uh, to you know combat sea level rise. And this is everything from building dune systems, new kelp forests, new art you know new artificial reef systems uh, made out of you know organic materials. And again what we found is, is that many of these are actually the cheapest alternative to armoring a coastline. They're cheaper than seawalls. They're cheaper than throwing, you know, huge riprap full of rocks on the coast to protect, you know, a power plant. And so the question you you would ask is, well, then why aren't they being done if they're cheaper? The reason is there's this asymmetry in the information, right? Developers, whether it's in a city or private developers, they don't have experience working with dune systems and eel grasses and wetlands and they don't understand exactly how uh, powerful those can be whereas if you want you know a seawall you can go talk to a bunch of engineering firms and they'll give you detailed specs and the maintenance costs and the lifespan etc and so what we call for in our report is for the army corps of engineers to begin creating engineering standards for all of the different types of living shoreline systems and start creating demonstration projects in all regions of the country, as well as a national database to collect all the information on these projects, both their cost and their efficacy, so that we can build this into the national consciousness for the development community. So that five years down the road, people will see these systems at work and all over the U.S. They'll have databases, they'll have engineering standards, and this can spur a whole new industry. And this information will make people comfortable with their technology and then start adopting it. And we think it will, you know, the adoption will be exponential uh, once that information barrier is overcome. You know, the last point I'll just mention here is that you know, we put a lot of effort into uh, for the seafood industry to moving to low trophic level species. So whether that's sea vegetables or even shellfish, you know, mussels, clams, oysters, that these are much more sustainable. They can actually sequester carbon. They can absorb carbon, actually, just as the living shoreline systems can. So they can protect um, coastline, but also sequester carbon, take it out of the atmosphere, and so. You know, the wild fish fisheries, um, we don't really see those as the main future. We see, again, this kind of plant-based and and shellfish-based instead of, you know, your salmon and your cod, right? That that's going to be the real future for the seafood industry. And we go even further. We think alternative seafood, just like there's alternative meat, the cell-based meat being developed uh, to take the place of hamburger and pork, we think the same thing should be done with fish. There's some companies already starting that, and we think a lot more federal R&D should go into this. Not only will this help our trade balance, because we import most of our seafood, and if we can produce it in the U.S., that will help our trade balance. It will help take pressure off of you know, our, our oceans and coasts and protect biodiversity there. But also, the beauty of alternative seafood is you can produce it anywhere. You could build a plant in Ohio, you know, in the industrial heartland, in Appalachia, where they really need jobs in industry, you don't have to do it in coastal communities because again, this stuff is grown in you know basically breweries. And so we think this can be a really great way to extend the seafood industry inland and create good jobs kind of in the industrial heartland. So our report um, is available on the Center for the Blue Economy website if you're interested. Uh, it's really a part of our larger effort to put more blue into the Green New Deal. And we're looking forward to working with Congress and the new administration in 2021 to get it done. And I'm sure I will have some further updates for you as this work progresses. Uh, But after the break, I'll come back with the antidote. Okay, so for the antidotes, going to be real brief today, and this is if you care about climate change and environmental quality and environmental justice and the future of humanity, which I would gather you do, it is imperative that we get people in office who share your concerns. This is especially true in the Senate, right? We need the Senate to be full of people who want to take action on climate change. So I would really focus your efforts on getting good senators elected um, in November. Uh, And then I want to give another shout out to the Environmental Voter Project. This is a voting project that targets environmentalists who often don't vote, and it urges them to vote based on environmental concerns. And they are very, very sophisticated and have some great technology, and I think can, you know, especially in tight races, can help get out those margins of people who care about the environment, but who sadly often don't vote, but they've found a way to motivate them. So again, uh, I give them quite a bunch of money, and I recommend them as, uh, to add to your giving list. Again, the Environmental Voter Project. So with that, everybody, I hope you have a great rest of the week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Uh, rate it. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. And with that, everybody, Take care and be well.